All right, so before we jump into the text uh, for uh, this morning's sermon, I want to talk to the kids. We do this every Sunday where right before the sermon, we, we talk to the kids directly to tell them what to expect from the passage we're going to read, what the sermon's going to be about, so they have some idea, and then they can go and ask questions to mom and dad. Okay, so kids, let me have your attention. Little ones, kids, young ones. Uh, it's a true story. True, 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 true story. Uh, 70 years ago, there was a woman. She was a long-distance swimmer. She, 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 was, she was really, really good at swimming. Uh, she once uh, swam what they call the English Channel, which is it's not easy. It's really dangerous water. She swam it back and forth. So she was this really awesome swimmer. Well, she decides she's going to swim from uh, this island called Catalina Island off of the coast of California. So she's out, she's out west. She's going to swim from a little island back to the mainland, the United States, okay? Well, the morning she's supposed to do it, there's like these news crews, you know, it's this big deal. It's really foggy. Do y'all know what fog is? It's like the, the clouds have come down. You can't see anything. So she's got her trainer in a boat following her, so they know she's going to be safe, you know, if anything bad happens. But this is like over 20 miles she's swimming. She swims for 15 hours. And she's talking to her trainer as she's swimming. She's like, I can't do it. I can't, I can't see the land. I can't see anything. I don't know where I am. I'm freaking out. I can't do it. And her trainer is, is you know, in the boat next to her saying, look at me. Look at me. You can do this. You're so close. I know you're so close. Keep going. Don't give up. And she just stops swimming. And she starts sinking. And they grab her and they pull her into the boat. And they row and they row and they realize... She was about 100 yards away from the shore. And so she said, she, she went to the news conference the next day and said, I, there's no one to blame but me. If I had seen the land, I would have made it. Okay, I think, if you think about that, I think that's a lot like the Christian life. I think that's like what it is to be a Christian. Is, uh, being a Christian, kids, it's the best it is, the, it is the best, and we can admit it's also hard. It's really hard to be a Christian. Kids, y'all are going to have times in your life where you screw up, you mess up, uh, you don't do something you're supposed to do, you do something you're not supposed to do, or life just gets really hard and sad. And you may think like, oh man, I messed up again. Oh man, like this is just too hard. Like life is really hard. Okay, do you know, how can you know, kids, how, this is one question I'm going to ask you, how can you know you're going to make it to the end? Peyton wants to give it a shot. Give it a shot, Peyton. What did you say that again? But what was the first part you said? Believing in Jesus. Y'all, I'm telling you, that's it. I did not give Peyton that answer this morning. I promise you, I did not. That's it. So, because here's, here's the thing. Life gets harder. You mess up, and you want to get to the end. You're like, oh my gosh, am I going to get to the end? Am I going to get it? Am I always going to be a Christian? Sometimes what you want to look at is what you've got to do. You want to look at, like, how much farther do I have to go? How much more do I have to do? Like, you want to look at what you've got to do in order to stay a Christian, get all the way to heaven. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says if you want to know how you're going to make it to the very end, that you are going to make it to the very end, who do you look at? Not yourself. You look at Jesus. And it's like Jesus is in the boat saying, look at me. 
look at me. You are going to make it. And he is. He is going to make sure you make it. But that's all it is. Like, am I going to make it? Today is so hard. I messed up again. My parents are so mad at me. My friends are so mad at me. I'm like the worst Christian ever. Am I always going to be a Christian? All you have to ask yourself is, wait a second. But do I believe in Jesus? Do I believe Jesus still loves me and forgives me? That's it. That is it. That's what we're going to talk about today. If we can make it through, uh, they tell me the air is going down. Say a little prayer. Um, But we're in, uh, this spring, we're in the Apostle Paul's letters to the Thessalonians. His first letter and his second letter. These are some of his earliest letters to the church. Uh, And it's dealing with this stuff of, listen, Jesus has just left us, lived, died, was raised, and now he's up in heaven reigning. Now so what for us? That's the big question the church is asking. Like, what are we supposed to do now? He writes 1 Thessalonians uh, uh, because at that point, this little church is starting to neglect the Christian life, like loving God, loving others, because they are so obsessed with when Jesus is coming back because they think he's coming back now. Now. Actually, wait. Now. It's that kind of stuff. Did I get the echo on that? <laughs> Thanks, Ryan. Uh, it's it, like they're obsessed. So they're neglecting everything. And Paul writes this letter to say, cut that out. Get back to living your Christian life and, and fulfilling those responsibilities of loving God and loving others. Get out there. Tell others about Jesus. Well, then he has to write 2 Thessalonians like just a couple weeks later, like a month or two later, because they've gone in the opposite direction of like, I think Jesus has already come back. And I don't think this is a big deal that we're waiting for him anymore. I, like, I think, I think this is just how it's going to be forever and ever and ever and ever. And they're losing their hope and they're losing their assurance that Jesus is coming back, that they are going to be finally, ultimately, completely saved. So uh, that's where we are. Last Sunday, last Sunday, we saw Paul pointing up this thing called election, this thing where God chooses some for salvation before the beginning of time. He knows who he's going to save. He chooses those he's going to save. We saw that Paul pointed that up as this incredible thing that we should be all super thankful for. And we're continuing on this Sunday. This is like part two uh, of this stuff uh, to point up that it's not only that we should, just, we should be thankful for election, we should see it as this incredible encouragement to us. So please read along with me. You'll notice that these are the same verses as last week with just a few more added on. Please stand for the reading of God's word. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you, through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. So again, last time we started talking about election, that before the foundations of the world, God chose 
those whom he desired for salvation, not because of anything in them, but out of sheer grace, the sheer grace of his will. Now, we said this last time too, election is super, it's difficult stuff. It is hard stuff. Not everyone in the church likes it. I, and I get it. Last Sunday, we answered objections uh, to election. Like, uh, objections like, well, what about the presumed arrogance, you know, this arrogance that it's going to lead to? You know, thinking if you're the chosen one. What about the, uh, the unfairness, apparent unfairness of election? Uh, why God might choose some and not others? Why God chooses to love some and not others? What if someone might want to believe but was not chosen? Okay, all understandable objections that we did our best to answer last time. And it's okay if you missed last week. Uh, it's, it's okay. If you want to go back, that can be more of a prequel. You don't have to think of this as like a sequel. You can go think of that as a prequel if you want to hear it. Today what we're going to do is we're going to see the consequences of election. And picking up where we left off, Paul says in verse 15, we left off in 14, Paul says in verse 15, so then, okay, all this wonderful stuff about election and calling, okay, so then, as in what are the consequences of election because Christians being the logical beings that they are hear this election stuff and they think, no, wait a second, what should a Christian do if anything if in the end God chooses and elects those he's going to save. Like, why not relax? Uh, it doesn't matter what you do, right? God loves you no matter what you do. He's chosen you, so just do you. But that's not what the Bible says. That's not what the Bible ever says uh, about election. That's not what Paul says right here. Uh, el and elsewhere, Paul and other parts of the Bible, many other parts of the Bible, have tons of implications for election, but here Paul has one thing in mind. Paul's focusing on one thing here, that, and he says it in two ways, but it's one thing. It's because God has chosen you, what are you supposed to do? Stand firm. So stand firm, that is, hold on to what you've been taught. Stand firm, which sounds so not super exciting. Like, election is supposed to be this amazing, grand, mind-blowing reality. And the consequence is for us to stand firm. Because we think standing firm equals no movement, equals stagnation, equals boring. Like, we want adventure. You know, we, wanna, we don't want to stay put. We want to go places. Okay. And, and, you've got to remember that immobility, stillness, can feel really, really good. It can be the thing that you most want more than anything. One holiday, my brother-in-law, Evan, and I were catching a connecting flight to meet up with the rest of the family on a little vacay. This connecting flight was from a big airport to a small airport, and so the plane was a small prop plane. Uh, midway through, way up high in the middle of the sky, in the middle of the night, in the middle of nowhere between Colorado and Wyoming, we hit turbulence, what they now call rough air. 
uh, it's dark inside, it's dark outside, and all you feel at first is that bump, and bump, and then, you know, bump, and then the shake comes, the shake where your rear is separated from the seat, and, and, and shake, and then there's a shake, and then there's a shake, and then you hit free fall. That's where, if you're not buckled in, you'd be up flying in the plane that's not flying anymore, and you free fall. And, and then all of a sudden, you, you climb. You climb like you're taking off in a plane from the ground, except you're not on the ground. You're in the middle of the air. And then free fall again. And then climb. And then free fall and climb. And you find, unconsciously, uh, that you're holding the hand of your brother-in-law. <laughs> and you're staring each other in the face with that look of, I love you. <laughs> Goodbye. Uh, and, and I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna tell you how it ends. Um, another story, another time. But um, I can tell you uh, that all ten passengers, all we wanted in that moment, in the midst of all of that chaos, was stillness. We just wanted to be still. Nobody in that plane was yelling. This is my favorite. Oh, I was so bored like five minutes ago. <laughs> like no, nobody was saying that. Stillness, immobility, standing firm feels really, really good after you've been rocked back and forth and back and forth and up and down and up and down. And if that's your life, you want stability. You, you want to feel like you're standing firm. And Paul has already acknowledged to the Thessalonians that they are being rocked, that they are being thrown around by persecution from the outside world and by false teaching from within the church now. There are people in the world who don't like what you like, who don't believe what you believe, who think, who fear that you're crazy and you're dangerous and therefore you are a threat. And there's false teaching among you that's deceiving you, robbing you of hope and assurance. So, uh, yeah, by God's amazing grace, you've been chosen. You're his elect people, and now you have got to stand firm with this gospel truth, or you are going to be rocked and thrown and blown off course. And this is why Paul says in verse 15, I want you to hold to the traditions taught by us, either by our word or by our letter, letter referring to 1 Thessalonians. So when he says hold to the traditions, he's not talking about little, little T traditions of like, you know, the fun stuff we do at Christmas or, or, or you know, things we do and say here, uh, which is, you know, different from uh, other churches doing, you know, different uh, things, worship, mostly the same thing. But, you know, just the way we do it, though, he's not talking about little T traditions. He's saying capital, capital T traditions. That is, he's talking about the apostolic tradition. He's talking about the New Testament tradition. He's talking about scripture. Hold on to scripture. And he says to us, hold fast to the truth. Hold fast to that because you're chosen. You are called through faith in the truth. Now stick with it which for us, we are in the same boat as the Thessalonians 2,000 some years later 
is in in our here's you know application in our present situation are we you know this is we should say this is one of those harder parts of the sermon it's a little it, which you know now i can see your faces and see how you react to this stuff and forever i couldn't um in our present situation are we going to be moved by opposition or are we going to stand firm and hold on are we going to be moved for instance into dethroning god where god is no longer sovereign where god is no longer the one who defines right and wrong where god is no longer the one who who defines what's real and what's not real how we can know what's true and what's not true who defines what the family is what the church is what the city of man is what identity is what sin is what corrupts us and what does not corrupt us you can think of big cultural issues in front of us like sexuality what a male is what a female is what marriage is what sex is the world is telling us to move to move away from God's sovereign authority and power and wisdom to declare and to, to define what these things are. And the question for us is, will we move? Or will we stand firm? And that standing firm is graciously with open arms to anyone who wants this grace in Jesus. Will we stand firm with God and hold on to the tradition of the apostles, the New Testament, the scriptures are we going here's another example we can go into a lot of examples are we going to be moved into denying the gospel or are we going to stand firm the gospel addresses all mankind all peoples as sinful human beings who have turned away from god with twisted hearts turned in on ourselves the gospel therefore calls individuals to repent and to turn away from our sin, to turn away from ourselves, and to turn to Jesus with faith. That he has accomplished our salvation in his life and death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, and that with him there really is forgiveness of sins. There's new life that is everlasting life. That's the gospel. But now some, even within the church, want to redefine the narrative and they want to address and categorize individuals not as individuals but as groups that are either right or wrong. And regardless of who you are, regardless of who you are as an individual, if you belong to the wrong group, you are guilty in repentance and forgiveness. It is impossible. What has to happen is the group must be abolished. Are we going to be moved into ripping out the heart of the gospel that leads to reconciliation and transformation where in the church, through Christ, we, we, terrible sinners, we here, we, terrible sinners, are brought more and more together in true unity and love as we work out that reconciliation through the power of the Holy Spirit at work in us. Big cultural issues are out there. Big church issues are out there. And then, like, what about the personal struggles? 
where this hits you every day. The personal struggles, the issues with work and the issues with money and friends are our own temptations, our pride, our fears, the unexpected suffering that comes, the, the unexpected death that comes into our lives. When we find it hard to believe the promises of God and to carry on and you think, you think, you wonder, maybe there's another answer out there. We've got to ask, are we going to be moved by our struggles or are we going to stand firm? This is the big question. This is the, this is the big question for each and every one of us. Are, are we going to stand firm, hold on to, stick with Jesus? Are we going to stand firm with Jesus and are we going to do it to the very end? Either until he comes back, right, now, or until he calls us home. Uh, this, is where, this is where election comes back into the picture. Because uh, everywhere election appears in the Bible, it is meant to be the greatest encouragement to you. That God chose you because you can't choose him. This thing of Paul builds on what he has just said, that God's love is the reason he has chosen a people to save. So what happens to those whom God loves, whom God chooses, whom he calls to himself? He says, verse 16, the Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. The seven other times uh, that Paul talks about this eternal comfort, this good hope, in these two letters alone, First and Second Thessalonians, it is always this good hope, this eternal comfort for the future of Jesus coming back to complete our salvation. As in the God who loved us and chose us, who saved us, gives us assurance that he is going to complete that salvation. It is certain those whom God has chosen must stand firm in the truth of this gospel and the great assurance of our having been chosen is that Christians are going to persevere in faith to the very end because Jesus does not fail to finish what he started. As in, you want this assurance. Now some, some in the history of the church have not liked this assurance stuff because they argue that like election, if you've got assurance then you don't have to do anything. If you've got this kind of assurance, then you don't have to do anything because you're already assured that you're in the club, club heaven. Uh, you're already going to go to heaven. So there's no motivation to stay in the church. There's no motivation to do what you're supposed to do, love God, love others. And it's actually just the opposite. Your hope of heaven, follow me here, your hope of heaven, it does not depend on your changed life. Your hope of heaven does not depend on the fruitfulness of your new Christian life. Rather, your changed life, your fruitful life as a Christian, loving God and loving others, it comes as a result of your assurance. It comes as a result of your assured hope of heaven because of what Jesus has already done for you. This is Paul coming back full circle to this in verse 17, that this assurance will comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. And there are, 
there, there are a few misunderstandings about assurance that we can address. One is, is this, is uh, can people have false assurance? Can people have false comfort? Yes. Yes. It is possible for people to think that they are Christians, and they're not Christians. It is possible for people to profess faith, say that they're Christians, actually do some good works, but they da actually don't genuinely believe in Jesus, in his life, in his death, his resurrection for their salvation. They don't have genuine faith. And so we could go off into that. We could talk, but just to point that up as a possibility, yes. Yes, some can have false assurance of their salvation, but that in and of itself does not invalidate the Bible's teaching on assurance and how you can get it. Just because some misuse it, misappropriate it, misunderstand it. And I know you hear that and you're like, well, that's really super scary. <laughs> because what do you do if you're feeling insecure about your own faith? As in, I keep messing up. I don't feel close to God. I am not on fire for Jesus. Actually, faith feels uh, like a total chore for me. That's super boring and life-draining, not life-giving. Does that mean I'm not a Christian? Is Jesus looking down at me right now, wagging his finger and saying, hypocrite? Listen, Paul, Paul is not saying that if you don't have the assurance that you will stand firm and persevere, that you then therefore will not stand firm and persevere. Okay? If you don't have assurance, it doesn't mean you're not a Christian. And that's important because there are Christians who do fall into serious sin and yet do not lose their salvation. Uh, it's really important. Um, uh, they don't lose their salvation. They end up repenting. They end up returning to the faith. And one guy you could look at is you look at, you could look at so many characters in the Bible. Look at David. Look at King David. The Bible describes him as a man after God's own heart. And the Bible tells us that he stole another man's wife that he committed adultery with her. Then he tried to cover it up. When he couldn't cover it up, he had her husband murdered. That is not okay. That is awful. That is disgusting. That is terrible sin in the eyes of God. And David does not escape the consequences of, of, uh, of that sin. He doesn't escape the horrible suffering that follows from that sin. And, and the depth of the awfulness of David's sin highlights the heights and awesomeness of the salvation given him and the promises of this gospel which he turns to in repentance. Yes, there are the, you know, the people who turn away from the faith forever and ever and ever. They're what we call apostates. Yes, there are apostates who make professions of faith and then turn away from Jesus forever, but that's because they never knew him in the first place. And there are those who genuinely believe and fall into radical sin, sometimes for prolonged seasons of life. And this brings up another good question about assurance, is do our good works... Do our good works play a part in our assurance? Yes and no. Yes and no. As in, 
assurance, what we want to say is assurance is supplemented. It is supplemented by the fruit of our salvation, our changed character, our good works. It does help our assurance. I heard this story from a friend who heard it from a friend. It's a true story, y'all. True story about a Scottish farmer up in the Highlands, uh, and he was a devoted atheist, and he had a terrible, terrible temper. Big anger management issues. He's farming, and uh, something goes wrong. He'd get real mad, and he'd kick the pig. Uh, He's farming, and something breaks. He'd get really mad, and he'd kick his Scottish llama. He had this explosive, violent temper. And then one day, a Christian evangelist is passing through the village and held an open-air worship service. And the farmer just happened to be in town that day and heard this guy preach the gospel. And to the farmer's utter amazement, he came to faith. He started believing in Jesus. He genuinely, miraculously converts and becomes a Christian. And so back at the farm, he starts living out his faith praying, reading the Bible, going to Sunday worship. And a few weeks pass, and he's out in the barn. He's milking the cows, and one of the cows kicks over one of the buckets, one of the milk buckets, and he instinctively kicks the cow. And a few moments later, he is running back into the farmhouse. His wife is cooking, and he collapses at the table, and he starts bawling, crying. Head in hands, staring down at the floor, and he says to his wife, it didn't work. It didn't work. Jesus came into my life, saved me, but it didn't work. I'm still the angry man I was before. And his wife looks at him and says, look at you. You are weeping over your sin. You have never responded to anger like this, ever. The fact that you are so sad over your sin is proof that Jesus has saved you. And he is at work in you. This is the fruit of our salvation that helps our assurance of salvation. This new aspect of his inner life expressing itself in grief and sadness. He sees his sin and he hates it. This is what theologians call mortification of sin. This, is the, this reflection and hatred of his sin is now going to work itself out in a renewed battle against his sin. As in Christ's love really is active in his heart. It's not just that, we want to say, it's not just that we look at our bare works. You know, the Pharisees looked at their, their bare works and said, see, I'm in heaven. I, I'm, I'm good. No, we also have to look at what produces our works and see if that thing is first and foremost Jesus' love for us. As in, do we hate our sin more than we used to hate it? And do we see the cross bigger than we used to see it? And do we find Jesus more beautiful than we used to, more good, more powerful? That's the other side of it. That's what the theologians call vivification, looking in love to Jesus. That will help your assurance. Okay, but, and, you're not going to go through life always assured. Assurance wavers. That is okay. That is to be expected. There are going to be times you're going to wonder if you're really a Christian. Welcome to the club. Our own Westminster Confession of Faith, this, this old 
document that we hold on to as part of our, our little tradition uh, uh, assures us that our assurance will waver in this life. It says this. This is the Westminster Confession. It says, True believers may have the assurance of their salvation shaken, diminished, or temporarily lost in various ways. And then the confession goes through a whole list of reasons why and how someone may be doubting their salvation. It's not always for the same reason. You guys can go back and you can look at that Westminster Confession of Faith stuff. It's super helpful, uh, but you know, you're not always going to have that thing on hand, and so it may be hard to remember, wait, why am I doubting? Or this person comes to me and they're doubting, and you want to do the diagnosis. You want to do self-diagnosis. You want to be able to help the person who comes to you uh, because you want to try to understand why they're doubting because if you... If you apply the wrong diagnosis, you make the wrong diagnosis and apply the wrong kind of remedy, it's not going to help. Uh, so, you know, diagnosing what's going on is important. So what I want to give you to end here is just a little framework of, of why you might be doubting your salvation. As in, what are the sources of your doubt about you and Jesus, this whole Christianity thing? And I think the easiest way to remember this stuff and try and work through it is, to think about your enemies. Think about your enemies. One would be uh, the world, in the sense of, are you listening to the world? The world that says, you want to save somebody? Save yourself. You can save yourself. It's about doing good. It's about doing more good than bad. And unfortunately, you can hear this too much and too often in churches today. They call, you know, this legalistic preaching that this Christian life is about what you need to do, that God is disappointed in you right now because you've not done enough. And then maybe at the very end, there's some Jesus tagged on, so it sounds like a gospel sermon, but it's not. Uh, that kind of stuff, listening to the world that even makes its way into the church, this stuff of you can do it, save yourself. Be better than you are bad. Okay, maybe you're doubting because you're listening, you know, not necessarily to the world, but you're listening to sin. So your enemies, you know, the world, sin, uh, that there are certain sins and addictions that cause doubt because of the guilt that they produce. And sometimes what that means is you do need to come clean to God about stuff you're hiding. Sometimes it might mean you need to come clean to a friend about something you're hiding because you're listening to your sin and it's causing all kinds of doubt. Maybe you're listening to temptation and the devil. As in there are strong temptations that you deal with and you're feeling really, 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 really weak, and it can feel like God's power has left you to resist so that you can't resist, and you have to give in to this temptation. It has overwhelmed you. Uh, that can be a source of doubt. Another source of doubt could be, uh, you know, the, what goes along with this. You're listening to these things in means on the flip side, you're not listening to God in his means of grace. And then... You're neglecting God's means of grace, his means of strengthening your faith and your assurance, as in you're neglecting worship, or you're neglecting the preaching of the word, or you're neglecting prayer, or you're neglecting the sacraments, or you're neglecting fellowship with other Christians. If you are not doing these things, I promise you, you will most definitely uh, suffer with doubt. It will affect your assurance. Uh, and then it could just be suffering and trials, and this could be one of God's efforts because you're ignoring all his other means of grace. What he does is he brings suffering and trials uh, into your life. He allows us to walk in darkness. A lot of psalms, 
or about that experience, if you're having that experience of confusion, like you're in the dark about Jesus, you're in good company. Uh, that's not unusual. Life's ups and downs. Everybody in the Bible, all your, all your Bible heroes, all had their ups and downs in their faith. And it's because we live by faith and we don't live by sight. There is a reason, put it this way, your assurance wavers. Uh, there's a reason God is always assuring people in the Bible. It's because we all doubt. And if Christians didn't doubt, we wouldn't need God assuring us over and over. So, end with this. How can you really know? How can you really, 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 really know? How can you really be assured uh, that you will make it to the end? I know that some of you, I know that some of you uh, at some point in your Christian life uh, may have been encouraged to write down the date and time that you became a Christian uh, and to describe how it happened so that when you're in a rut, when you're in a place of doubt and despair with your faith, you can go back and you can read that testimony and you can remind yourself, that's right, that's right, that's when I became a Christian, I'm good to go. Loved ones, I'm afraid that that is false assurance. Because in that moment of doubt and despair, you're putting your faith uh, in you. You're turning to you. You're turning to your past self and something you've done. You're putting your faith in your past faith. You're believing and you're believing. Loved ones, you do not know your election, your salvation by some point of reference in your past experience, no matter how memorable and awesome it was. And I, that's awesome if it was. If you're going to try to answer this big question of, am I going to stand firm? If you're going to answer that by first and foremost looking at yourself and how you're feeling, how you're living, whether you've done enough good stuff to prove you're a Christian, that is not going to give you assurance. Uh, uh, because you're always going to find problems with you. If you're looking at you, you're going to find problems with you. Because there are a lot of problems with you, loved ones. You'll always second guess whether you've done enough or whether you've been genuine about your motivation, about the good things that you've done. Am I still a Christian? Don't answer that by looking at what you've done. Uh, at first, yes, your good ways, your character, that stuff helps, but that's supplemental. To answer that question, am I still a Christian? You look at, not you, you look at him. You look at Jesus. It is this thing of what Jesus has done. You go back to Jesus. You go back to the cross. In the face of all of your sin, in the face of all of your doubt, in the face of your struggle, you need to ask yourself in that moment, do I believe that Jesus is my Lord and Savior? Do I believe that he lived for me? Do I believe that he died for me? Do I believe that he was raised for me? Yeah, fine, yes. And it does not matter. I don't care how strong your faith is in that moment. It's can you answer that question honestly? Because it is not the quality of your faith that saves you. It is the object of your faith that saves you. Loved ones, you are not your assurance. Jesus is your assurance today, later today, tomorrow morning, the next day, and the next day until he comes back for us.
and we get to walk by sight and no longer walk by faith. But this is your assurance. You have Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for that wonderful assurance who is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you uh, for uh, this incredible encouragement of election uh, that proclaims to us that you have started it and that you will finish it. Father, help us to hold on to this eternal comfort and this good hope. Help us to stand firm in it come what may and help us to know that we do not stand firm alone, that we stand firm together. Help us to help each other stand firm in the awesome truth of this gospel. Assure us of it, we pray in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen.